Always a pleasure to see you and speak with you, uh, dear David, uh, on behalf of the Center for Strategic Philanthropy at the University of Cambridge. Uh, thank you uh, in advance uh, for taking the time to share uh, your always excellent insights uh, with us. Uh, David Miliband is, of course, the president and CEO uh, of the New York headquartered International Rescue Committee, the IRC, which conducts humanitarian relief operations in over 40 countries, uh, I believe. Uh, founded in 1933 uh, at the request of Albert Einstein, uh, the IRC has been uh, on the front line uh, helping refugees uh, and communities devastated by humanitarian crises around the world. Uh, to both survive and to rebuild their lives uh, and livelihoods. Uh, under David's uh, leadership, the organization has significantly expanded its global footprint and further enhanced its uh, already impressive capacity to respond with incredible speed to a host of humanitarian crises, including conflict, wars, uh, and, and other uh, disasters. Before joining the IRC uh, in 2013, uh, David was... Um, uh, a uh, somewhat unusually popular member of parliament uh, in the UK for over a decade, including serving uh, with distinction as, as a minister in a number of key uh, portfolios. Uh, 14 years ago, uh, while he was Secretary of State for the Environment, David actually oversaw the introduction of the world's first uh, legally binding uh, emissions uh, reduction standards. Uh, and as Foreign Secretary uh, from 2007 to 2010, uh, he represented the UK on the world stage uh, during uh, a period of global uh, economic upheaval at the time. And he's obviously navigating this year's crisis from a very different uh, vantage point, which is where I'd like to begin. Uh, David, um, what trends or forces uh, are driving the demand on the uh, IRC most of all? Uh, but not limited to, uh, of course, uh, COVID-19. And what more can philanthropists be doing to help address or mitigate uh, some of these challenges? You know, I've, I've heard you argue quite convincingly that the global refugee challenge is manageable and not unsolvable. And so what are the, some of the pr practical things that people, not necessarily directly engaged in the sector, can be doing to help solve it? Well, first of all, Badra, I want to uh, say hello. Uh, you've uh, uh, been a, a great friend and um, our discussions have always been incredibly beneficial to me in helping me get a global perspective on some of the issues that are really wicked and, and difficult. And so it's nice to know that you're, and to, to follow up the discussion we had in Davos uh, in January about the role of this really important center for the philanthropy at Cambridge. I'm sorry you don't have people punting behind you on the River Cam uh, as a Cambridge <laughs> backdrop. I don't know if the university has not yet invested in a, uh, in a, <laughs> a backdrop. Uh, Next time. <laughs> um, but uh, I think this is an important conversation and there are two parts to your question, aren't there? One is about trends and one was about the role of philanthropy. And just to give people a bit of a sense of where I'm speaking from, we have 200 field sites with 13,000 employees and 17,000 volunteers in about 35 countries around the world and about 800 staff in the United States and 25 offices um, who are dedicated towards refugee resettlement and supporting asylum seekers. Uh, the trends that we see, I think, are three or four fold, really. Um, first, there's obviously the COVID emergency itself, which in all candor, in direct health terms, has been less of a killer than we would have expected. Uh, the fact that it seems that 80% of cases in Africa, for example, are asymptomatic, 
uh, defies the prediction that I think I would have made if we'd been having this conversation six months ago, that densely populated populations with poor water and sanitation would see uh, COVID running rife and uh, a trail of destruction in its wake. Uh, there has been death and destruction. Uh, much of it is not well recorded, but it's not been on this scale that I expected. So that's the first uh, trend. Secondly, there's the non-COVID health impacts. And the trend there, interruption of supply chains for immunizations, people fearful of going to the health center. That's actually quite serious. And we're seeing um, a diminution of health care of pretty uh, sizable uh, kind. Um, the third trend is the economic and social collateral damage of COVID and its lockdowns. Uh, and that is very serious indeed. I mean, I've got the figures here, 265 um, million people um, expected to face life-threatening hunger uh, this year. Um, and so at a time when fewer people are reaching our clinics, more people are, in, are facing the most uh, acute uh, economic uh, needs, which I suppose is represented by these uh, fact that famine is now being um, predicted in three countries, in Nigeria and in South Sudan and in uh, Somalia. So the third trend, I think, is uh, to uh, this economic and social collateral damage. But of course, underpinning these uh, relatively short-term impacts of COVID, there's the wider picture, which is that the world is becoming more integrated, but nations are becoming more nationalist. So you're seeing this disjunction between an increasingly important global commons, an increasingly important interdependence globally, but a deglobalization politically. And the fact that COVID has come along and has represented that, I mean, the fact that the United States is pulling out of the World Health Organization as a symbol of its own um, uh, questioning of its role in the world. But I think that we see in many of the places we work a, a crisis of diplomacy. I mean, Syria is suffering a crisis of diplomacy. Yemen is suffering a crisis of diplomacy. Um, there is diplomacy in Afghanistan, uh, but it seems to be driven more by politics than by the conditions on the ground. Um, and so I think that that fear that our interconnected world is being is being mismanaged by disconnected politics is a is a mega trend or a meta trend that people in business and in philanthropy need to be concerned about, and certainly people in the, in the NGO sector are on the receiving end of. Now, that leads me, uh, I'm sorry about the length of my answer, but you, I know you're meant to do a 15-minute interview. This is going to turn into 150 minutes if we're not careful, but um, the, uh, this at least lays the ground. I mean, the role of philanthropy isn't to substitute for government, but it is to lead government when government isn't leading. And so I always say to people, philanthropy is our risk capital because governments aren't willing to take risks. Uh, philanthropy is our out-of-the-headlines capital because governments are often drawn to headlines. Philanthropists need to be drawn by um, principle. Um, philanthropy uh, is our um, special needs capital for groups who are underserved by uh, conventional uh, donors, uh, the, the hardest to reach in, in the countries that aren't fashionable or are out with the reach of governments. Those are That's where uh, I think philanthropy has an important role. And my very strong belief is that philanthropists and NGOs and the private sector need to offer leadership when government isn't, and then try and drag governments along by showing that there are solutions. Because the International Rescue Committee, as you know from your position on the Board of Advisors, we pride ourselves as an NGO that focuses on solutions, not just on suffering. And that is really important at this time. It's where philanthropy, I think, has a critical role to play. 
So let me turn to uh, the emerging markets. There's, for years now, there's been a major shift underway in the global economy, and you can see it on the ground in many parts of uh, Africa, the Middle East, uh, and developing Asia. And of course, I'm talking about the rapid growth of the world's uh, emerging uh, economies and the associated creation of wealth in these markets. What impact do you think that the rise of these fast-growing economies could have on our ability to fund humanitarian relief operations and to develop coordinated local solutions to complex local challenges? Well, I think that the, the, the starting point for that is to recognize that when it comes to humanitarian aid, 80-90% comes from conventional quote-unquote Western donors. Uh, but they are uh, decreasingly willing to bear the whole burden, the whole responsibility. And the second starting point I would make is that part of the wealth creation in emerging markets comes from connection to the global economy. And so my message is a simple one. Those who are doing well out of the growth in emerging markets, if they want to continue to enjoy the blessings of the connected world, they're going to have to face up to the responsibilities of the connected world. And we're beginning to see that, which I think is encouraging. Uh, then let me give two parts of the uh, of, of where I think it's going to have impact. One you referred to, which is that if we're working in northeast Nigeria, it's great and powerful to have not just local staff, but local philanthropy supporting us. Uh, there is credibility, there is legitimacy, there is sustainability, there is knowledge that comes from local capital. If we're working in the Middle East, um, you know well... Um, then uh, for all that there are dangers of being seen on one side or the other, we are a neutral organization. Humanitarian work is independent. It's the, the principles of humanitarian action are about independence, neutrality, impartiality. And so I think it's very important um, to recognize that when you go local, the danger is that you become partisan. And so it's very important to get the benefits of localization without the partisanship of localization. And that, can be a, that needs to be a self-denying ordinance when, when you're funding humanitarian work in your own backyard. Um, the second thing that I think is really important is that I hope uh, philanthropists from in emerging markets are going to correct the failings of Western philanthropy. They're not just going to copy it. There are some great things about Western philanthropy, uh, but too often it's short-term, too often it's boutique with a, with a premium on novelty rather than a premium on scale. Uh, a reinvention of the wheel rather than a uh, taking the wheel to more places. And so I think there's room for philanthropy and relationships of organizations like mine with philanthropists in emerging markets um, to show that there are better ways of doing things. And that's certainly what we would like to see. So uh, turning to the nature of capital for a second, are you seeing uh, an uptick in the use of blended finance uh, or other innovative approaches to financing uh, projects uh, in the work that you're doing. What kind of innovation would you like to see more of uh, in, in this space? And how can we better uh, enable uh, pooling of resources, I guess, between donors uh, from different sectors uh, and from different parts uh, of the world? I mean, the short answer is no, we're not seeing blended. Right? I mean, humanitarian aid is often seen as too complicated, too dangerous for research studies, outcome targets, impact evaluations, we reject that completely. We are the, the International Rescue Committee. I know it's something that um, attracts you about the organization. We are the largest impact evaluation agency in the humanitarian sector. We reject the idea that 
just because it's a matter of life and death, you can't uh, you can't measure it. Quite the opposite, because it's a matter of life and death, you should measure it. And you need to make the, the dollars or the euros or the uh, pounds go further. Now, uh, and in the future, maybe the renminbi go further. Uh, the um, the uh, the the truth, though, is that we are seeing um, growing emergencies and a race to catch up, and that's not a good scenario for complicated blended finance. Um, this may be um, galling to you or um, disappointing, but uh, longer-term finance would be an innovation for us. I mean, we are running 450 government grants; they're a year in length. I mean, even when we have to do renewals as bureaucracy. So if, if philanthropic finance comes in and says, look, we're interested in three to five years because we know this problem is not going away, that would be an innovation. Uh, if there is innovation, if there is a finance that is linked to outcomes rather than linked to inputs, that would be innovation. Um, blending immediately means committees, complication. There's a, there's a danger that we get uh, caught up in our own complexity. And I, I would urge that we think about outcomes, that we think about timescales, that we think about innovation, and then we can think about partners. Um, now, there's one caveat or rider. It would be great to think that philanthropists and donors in emerging markets and elsewhere that you're working with, you, you hinted at this, they come together. And rather than trying to invent the wheel themselves, they actually come in behind proven plans that we've developed or proven innovations that we want to roll out. So you've already touched on the politics of it, but, uh, you know, You've spent a large part of your career in the political arena, and although it's never been for the faint of heart, we do seem to be dealing today with unusually high levels of polarization, disinformation, and in some cases, just a complete lack of trust in institutions. Do we really stand a chance at solving the world's acute problems in such an environment? And what could be done to reverse some of these unfortunate trends? Well, I think that um, it's up to us is the answer to you. I mean, uh, rather than predicting whether or not we are going to succeed or fail in the next 30, 50 years, uh, I think it's up to us to make sure that we make as much progress as possible. I mean, there are dark clouds, um, but there are more resources than ever to make a difference. And I think that's what we should focus on, really. I think that we need a humility about the scale of the problems. The managing an interdependent world of 8 billion people is a, a, a challenge on a scale that's probably never been known. Uh, but if you see some of the changes that have been made in some countries, I mean, the country that you come from is an example, the changes that have happened in the space of one or two generations, that would have seemed like a, a dream or a utopia or a, a revolution, uh, just a, a sort of something out of a novel. Um, in, in some of the changes that have happened, never mind the changes on a larger scale in China or elsewhere. And so I think that uh, my maxim is that the resources are there to manage these problems. And if they're, they're man-made problems, climate is a man-made problem, war is a man-made problem, poverty is a man-made problem, human-made problem, uh, often man-made actually, but uh, the, uh, the human-made problems are amenable to human solutions. And it's our fault if we don't do it. And so I think we've got to get on with it. Uh, you know, President Kennedy said just because a, when a problem's big, that's not a reason to delay. It's a reason to get started. Here, here. Uh, finally, I know that one of your strategic priorities at the IRC uh, since 2013 has been to build uh, and deepen partnerships with a growing network of public and private sector organizations. Uh, how would you encourage uh, philanthropists, uh, again, in the emerging markets, but, but everywhere, 
to build effective long-term and not just transactional uh, partnerships with organizations such as the IRC? I think that the key thing I've learned is to think in 360 degrees. Don't just think about the 90 degrees that is the signing of the check. Think about the exchange of ideas. Think about co-creation. Think about the exchange of expertise. There will be partners who want to write a check, but they've also got a law department that wants to do some pro bono work, or they've got an advertising department that wants to do some work, or they've got a group of young employees who want to uh, spend a a day shadowing an aid worker. There there are ways of developing a partnership that can never pretend that the bottom line of a company is the same as the bottom line of an NGO, but can recognize that there are some shared elements in the bottom line or shared contributors to the bottom line, human development, employee development being one of them. And so I think that thinking in the round about partnership so that there's real relationship, not just transaction, is really important. David, uh, as always, a a pleasure, my friend. Uh, I very much look forward to our next uh, in-person conversation. And Uh in the meantime, uh, wish you the best of health and and success in everything that uh, you do. Thank you again. Thank you very much, Brad. It's great to see you and really look forward to more conversations and any feedback on the conversation that we've had from your viewers. Thank you very much.